I believe that business, yes, for-profit business, I think it's one of the greatest tools for the good of mankind, right? When I Mm -hmm. think about lifting people from poverty, economic security, um, dignity, finding your calling, all those things, shared purpose when Mm -hmm. you have a team, Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's really powerful. Talk about maybe a story of how you've seen the work that you guys are doing that leads to flourishing in the community. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. Yes, business can be a means of impact in so many ways, and today's guest, Brian Berenger, is not only impacting the businesses around him, but he's also teaching young entrepreneurs the real-world skills they can use to be effective in business. Remember, no matter what your passion is, there are ways to use it to impact the world. You just need to embrace your gifts and skills, build a plan, and act. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast. I'm your host, Ed Gillentine. I'm here with Brian Berenger, who's the director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Christian Brothers University here in Memphis. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Brian and CBU are doing some really neat impact-related stuff. And as always, there's way more that we'd love to talk about that we're going to have time to get to. But uh, before we dive in, let me give you a brief background on Brian. He was uh, raised in Birmingham, Alabama, graduated from the Auburn University in 1994. Uh, By the way, I did a little research on that. That was a good year football-wise for Auburn, other than they were under some sort of sanctions or something. Yeah, we were, but it was a good year. It was the second time we beat Alabama at home. But it was the best year for my University of Tennessee volunteers because you will remember that the great Peyton Manning was his freshman year, and after the other two starters ahead of him got injured, I believe they went 8-1 and the rest of the year. That's true. So those halcyon days of the Tennessee volunteers, which are fading almost into oblivion right now. Almost. It's getting but, there for yeah, the first it, time in a couple of decades. <laughs> <laughs> He's a serial entrepreneur, three decades of experience. I think he shared with me he got started when he was eight. So I don't think I started cutting grass till I was maybe <laughs> 10. Um, He's been involved in 10 startups, and I think this is interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, six of which were financed and three of which were successfully exited. That is very difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had the... Uh Bugatti sitting outside because of those three exits. They were kind of family office business type, Mm -hmm. smaller acquisitions. Um, And I did have one larger one as, you know, with one of my own companies I had by myself, but it certainly gave me a lot of experience understanding what M&A is all about, just how to to close out those exits. So it did, did provide valuable experience, if not the Bugatti sitting outside. Well, you know, you can get the Bugatti later. Sure. Uh, and so I got a Lego version, so it's all right. <laughs> I love that. That was probably harder to get or harder to build. I don't know. Uh, currently, he's a professor, adjunct professor at CBU, and as we mentioned, also the director of the Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. He's married with three kiddos. Did I kind of cover it all? Yeah. I mean, that's the that's a short version. That's, that's the, the version I like to tell. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So why don't we just dive in with the cliff note version of how you got from Birmingham, Alabama, via Auburn, to Memphis, Tennessee, Christian Brothers University, and doing what seems to be what you love to do. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't have written this last chapter or whatever this chapter is. Hopefully it's not the last chapter. Uh, if I tried thinking back to who I was merely just four years ago, much less 30 years ago. Right. I, I'm, you know, as you said, I'm a third generation serial entrepreneur, which means that my parents and my grandparents were entrepreneurs. My grandfather owned a, an antique store. My grandmother owned a gas station and car oh, dealership. Wow. Uh, and so they were, you know, they were definitely entrepreneurs that I learned from very early. So even in my younger threes and fours and fives, I'd actually go and work in the antique store and, and different things like that. So I got a, I got a, you know, certainly a taste of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, at the same time I was learning how to run uh, and ride bikes. And then as I grew up and I was in my eight, nine, 10 year old, uh, my father who had a full-time job as a salesperson for healthcare, uh, he was an entrepreneur. So he had all these side hustles and most of which I didn't have a lot of involvement with just, just hearing, you know, at the dinner table, what he's talking about. And some of them are crazy different things that we he just tried, but he kind of gave me that take the leap of faith, um, you know, experience. Those but, are probably ones you learn absolutely. as much of, as the others on. Absolutely. And and he knew about customer discovery before I even knew the words because 
he was doing customer discovery on his own son who was burning a hole through a bootleg copy of Star Wars in 78. <laughs> uh, and we opened a, a, a video rental store. Hey, can and, we just clarify? That was the first Star Wars, right? Absolutely. That's not absolutely. whatever absolutely. they call it. Is it like number four now or it, six? W- yeah, it, by, by uh, George Lucas terms and in, in the canon, it's, it's number four. But certainly it was the start of it all. Uh, and so he decided, you know, take a gamble of VHS versus beta, which probably very few people uh, younger than us actually know what I'm talking about. But, you know, the VH test was the gamble he took. And we opened a retail business. And by the time I was 10, I was working there on a daily basis. By the time I was 13, I was managing two or three people wow. in the entire I had built inventory systems on his old IBM XT, which was not old at the point, uh, and it was as big as the table I'm sitting at. Uh, and I just was very entrepreneurial uh, without understanding anything about entrepreneurship mm-hmm. at that early age. Uh, and we sold that business by the time I was a teenager. We sold another one of our retails by the time I was you know, getting into college. Uh, and after graduating, moving up here to Memphis, all I really thought about working on was technology for FedEx. Right. I'd forgotten uh, about that entrepreneurial, you know, gene I had in me, mm-hmm. but it didn't take me too long to figure out that I did not, I love FedEx, but I did not like working at a business, right? I sure. wanted to control my destiny. I wanted to, to, to innovate on things I wanted to innovate upon. Uh, and I wanted to find co-founders that I could build businesses with. And so mm-hmm. that's what I started doing, uh, jumping off into a few startups, uh, some small, the dot-com bubble, burst, but I was able to actually bring a successful business out of that uh, from a failing business that I Mm -hmm. bought the intellectual property from uh, that I actually created while I was working at that business. So I created the intellectual property there, but then I bought it from them for about 30 cents on the dollar and then spun it into a business that we later sold uh, quite effectively in 2005 to a business out in California. So it was this great set of experiences. And that to me, that experience of going from nothing all the way through acquisition and then actually mm-hmm. working for the company for a few years afterwards, um, really, uh, it was kind of one of those things where if I was ever had a decision that entrepreneurship was going to do for the rest of my life, that was it, right? Yeah. And so uh, even though I did go back to FedEx a couple of times as a consultant because mm-hmm. I wanted to work on technologies, but I still was their entrepreneur in residence and their innovator in residence for them too. So it just became one of these things where entrepreneurship was what I wanted to do. But in this last uh, go around on a business, um, it failed quite, quite hard. Um, The only thing that was fantastic about it was I married my co-founder. So she and I are, (laughs) are now locked in as co-founding that role for life. But one of um, the few times failure was worth it. Right. right, Absolutely. You always learn from failure. Absolutely. And we learned a lot from it Mm -hmm. and it was fantastic. So as I was looking for something to do, a friend of mine at University of Memphis said, why don't you just come over here and help train the, the young um, entrepreneurs in our accelerator program? And I came in on a Thursday, and then I came back on that Friday, and by the Tuesday of the next week, he's like, do I need to start paying you now? And I said, yes, you should start <laughs> paying me now. And so I became the entrepreneur in residence at University of Memphis. And really, after about a month and a half there, I realized, wow, this is something brand new for me, of which I can be entrepreneurial in creating programs and creating education and creating tools and techniques uh, that I've learned from both education of, through accelerator programs, but also just picked up on my own. Uh, working in an academic setting is both challenging and rewarding uh, because we had to change a lot of status quo. I was going to say uh, the culture... From Absolutely, entrepreneurial culture yeah. to an academic culture has got to be distinctly different. Wow, yeah. But most universities, and certainly the administration of universities, want to be entrepreneurial because, uh, according to a recent article by Forbes and some studies done, fifty-four percent of Generation Z are planning, not want, not mm-hmm. desire, planning to be an entrepreneur. So if you have over the majority of the new students coming in that are planning to be an entrepreneur, they want the skills to be an entrepreneur. And if we're not teaching those skills, then we're missing, you know, missing the opportunity there for economic development for the entire nation, world, region, you name it, city. In so particular. much for the myth that the younger generations don't want to work and don't want to take risks. They want to work like they want to work. Yes. We all were conditioned to work as we were told to work. Correct. Or yeah. how we were expected to work. Mm-hmm. Totally have, different ball game. They don't have that ball and chain attached mm-hmm. to their mm-hmm. ankle. I like how you say that yeah. ball and chain. And it's fantastic for them and it's fantastic for me. Because I get to say, okay, don't put on that ball and chain. Go to vocational school. Right. 
let's turn our school into a vocational school. And I don't mean not just welding and everything else. I mean start thinking skills-oriented as opposed to theory-oriented. Right. Teach the skills. You know, challenge the status quo and the norm to deliver a better product to the customer, which is, in this case, students. And CBU is completely on board with that. We brought in a new president a couple of years ago, about a year, about a week before I started. Uh, he's an economic development background. Uh, he's really interested in entrepreneurship and pushing that, and he knows that that's kind of part of the future, just part of mm -hmm. the future for his university. So when I came from University of Memphis, had an opportunity to go to Christian Brothers and open up the Center for Entrepreneurship there, and then work on uh, the 800 Initiative, which I'd like to discuss, yeah. you know, as well. Um, I really began to see that this was my calling. This is where I needed to be and educating students and then able to educate other entrepreneurs, even skilled, experienced entrepreneurs at any age was like, great, I get to itch that entrepreneurial bug all day long mm -hmm. and I get to ideate with these people and help them better their products taking no risk on my own, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. And it's like the uncle handing back the baby to the mother, right? And then walking mm -hmm. off and going to drink a beer at their own home, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't have to worry about your business. I can worry about you, but right. it's not my the bank fun account. fun stuff. Right. But I tell them how to find the funding, right? I tell them how to stop spending their 401s and their IRAs and everything else because mm -hmm. those are retirement funds that you need to retire with. I tell them to you know, how to build a product or a business that customers want to buy and therefore investors want to invest in, you know, and these are things that pe they just don't hear right. uh, from other avenues. So it became, you know, it's a long story to why I got into the university setting, but it's been a very serendipitous one over the years, one that I've embraced every challenge along the way to find out at this point, this is where I really need to be. This is my calling. It's your groove, yeah. Right. I was going to say these, calling. All these acquisitions weren't to get me the Bugatti. It was to be able to get to the point where I can teach people how to be successful. And it's right. allowed me to be on advisory boards and a few other things to help and be a part of those teams too. So I get a little bit of the itch in a different way yeah. or scratch in a different way, but it's been very rewarding so far. So yeah, sorry for the long answer to your question. No, that, that's, that's fantastic. And, and, and the Journey to Impact book that we wrote, one of the things that, I'm passionate about is encouraging people to find why they're on planet earth. And, and it takes a while, right? I think yeah. one of the things I try to tell young people is, you know, at the risk of sounding negative, cause I don't mean it that way. You don't really know anything till you're 30. Oh, absolutely. And so take your time, uh, try out these different things. That's what's neat about your story. I mean, from antique stores to car dealerships to, to uh, VHS, I mean, you're, all these different things you're learning, they all come back to what you're doing today. And yeah. it's like you found your groove. Um, it did make me think of a question. Do you think, looking back on your own life and being surrounded mm -hmm. by entrepreneurs, do you think entrepreneurship is a gift? Um, it's like in your DNA or is it a skill? Is it something can, you can learn? What are your thoughts on that? Uh I used to think it was purely in your DNA. Uh -huh. I did. I mean, I thought there was entrepreneurs and there was non-entrepreneurs. The rest of us. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and it's funny that you say about the 30, and it's like I think you know who you're going to be at 30, and I don't think you really realize who you are until you're 40, but right. I'm 50, and I've got a, even a different perspective mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. You know, and, and, it's, and it's, it's a lot of clarity that's come with those years. But, you know, it's, it's, it's to the point of like it's – what do you really want to do with your life and where do you want to take it and everything in that regard? And how do you want to impact the, the world? Um, and, and that's where I really started to question myself along the way. And it's like, you know, it's not just something that you're born with. It's actually something that can be taught. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, and actually the, the part that made me realize that I started teaching a class on design thinking. And one of the first questions I asked, I just thought about just to ask this question is how many people in the room think they're creative? Right. I did this just yesterday with a class uh, and, and I got less than half of the people sure, raised their hands. Yeah. And I said, great, I'm going to talk to you for about an hour and a half and I'm going to ask you that question again. And usually by the, I do this over the course of a semester. And by the end of the class or the end of the semester, I asked the question again, who in here thinks are creative? And everybody raises their hand at that point. Because the class that I teach teaches them the skills on right. how to be creative. It's not there's people that are artistic and there's people that are not artistic, but everyone can be creative. I love because that. it's just a process, mm -hmm. right? It's just problem solving. I've always so, felt like I'm not a musician. My wife's an artist; she's a painter. Yeah. I'm not creative. And then I would say ten years ago, I realized I'm super creative at putting a deal together. Yeah, I'm super creative at spreadsheets. Right. Um, 
it's my creativity. And that was really freeing. Right. It's not a definition of a skill. It's a definition of a process that right. one goes through to be creative about whatever they're passionate about. And yours is in finance. Mm-hmm. So you work on yeah. deals in that way. And that's 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 the crux of the whole thing is like entrepreneurship's the same way. If I can boil down the experiences I had into components that can be educated, you know, that can be taught mm-hmm. with tools and techniques to go along with it and an overall timeline of when things should happen, then anybody can do it. It's all about the one thing I can't teach is a leap of faith, Yeah. right? And that's when, and I'm struggling right now with an entrepreneur who's making a really good salary at a business, but he's Mm -hmm. got a fantastic idea. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, that idea is not going to launch and you're not going to get any investment until you quit your job. He's like, I don't want to quit my job. I was like, I get it, I get it. But, and you're going to take a big, huge pay cut because mm-hmm. I don't want you to pay yourself what you're paying now when you start your, your entrepreneurship, I mean, your business and you're getting investment. But the fact is, is like I can't teach that leap of faith. But when I teach them that the landing zone on the other side of leap of faith is one made with process mm-hmm. and tools and techniques, yep. then it's not a void they're jumping into. Yep. It's actually another you know plateau they're jumping into to start walking down their path of, of entrepreneurship. So once I realized that, once I actually started building out actual education, um, it really became a method uh, mm-hmm. of teaching as opposed to just, hey, this is what entrepreneurship is. It's hard and it's dangerous and it's, you're going to be stressed and depressed and all these different things. Yeah, all that happens. But here are all the things to mitigate those and here are all the things right. to use as coping tools while you're going through these things. And here are things to look at when things when you hit a brick wall. Um, and, and, and that's really been quite beneficial to all the entrepreneurs that I've had the pleasure of teaching so far. And I've really realized that it can be something that's taught. And yep. now that's all I'm really focused and energized on doing is teaching as many people as I can because the statistics of 97% of businesses fail and 99% mm-hmm. of restaurants fail. And, you know, you always fail in your first startup, maybe your second startup and your third one might be successful. I want to just really throw those stats out the window. Yep. And They're say, terrifying without context. Right. Well, it's and it's terrifying without context because the context is they don't have the education and the tools right. they need to be a successful entrepreneur. So they're flying blind. And so I want to be able to be part of that, you know, that that push to teach them all the schools and techniques. So those numbers are irrelevant because we actually have statistics based off of companies being successful, mm-hmm. right, and long term and growing by one, two, three, ten, twelve x. And so I think if we just keep at this, we'll, we'll, we'll train a whole new batch of entrepreneurs that are going to be much more successful than previous. I want to come back to that. Hopefully we'll have time because I think it's important. If you think of, to me, you think of the talent pool in Memphis, Tennessee, which mm-hmm. I think is huge. Yeah. Um, if it's a function of the training you get mm-hmm. to dramatically increase your likelihood of success as an entrepreneur, I mean, how critical could that be? for Memphis. And that probably does sort of segue well into the 800 initiative. So talk about that for a minute, because um, I've been following it a couple of years. I'm Mm -hmm. really curious to get an update from the inside. But tell us about that and then how it's impacting Memphis and how you see it being such a big deal. I think that was at least 50% of the reason why I took the job at CBU Mm -hmm. was the opportunity to work on the 800 initiative, which had been going on for about a year before I started. So this is three years ago. Um, Mayor Strickland uh, and his infinite wisdom, uh, as far as this goes, wanting to make an impact to the city, um, decided that he was going to work with uh, Director Joanne Massey to create a variety of uh, resources for small businesses and entrepreneurs in the city. They opened up the Office of Business Diversity and Compliance. They opened, they took the Universal Life Building over and made that an entrepreneurial network center, which is fantastic over there. And Mayor Strickland put forth uh, an idea along with Joanne and Andre Folks from Starco about taking one of the accelerator programs. This was actually presented by Andre uh, three years ago, three and a half years ago, to take one of their Propel Accelerator programs, yep. which is a minority accelerator program, and actually build that into a much larger initiative. Uh, we looked at 2010 census data and found that there are 69,000 privately owned firms in Memphis. This has been validated by 2020 as well. There's 69,000 privately owned firms in Memphis. Of that, 39,000 of those, uh, roughly 40,000, are minority businesses, owned wow. businesses. Uh, but of that 69, that 40 only makes up 2.7% of the annual receipts, right? So the re- annual revenue generated by private businesses in Memphis, this is not the FedExes and the AutoZones. This right. is small, 
you know, privately owned businesses, they're only making less than three percent of the receipts. So when you have ninety seven of the ninety seven percent of revenue made up of only a third of the businesses, you really have a huge gap between the other two thirds. And so since the other two thirds are seen as minority businesses, predominantly black and, and Latinx at that point, um, and we and we put women minority founders or women founders in those two categories. Okay. Um, so they're included as well. But when we found that out and we decided, look, there needs to be a concerted and very deliberate effort to help. And so we joined, a, we, we built a consortium uh, with uh, StartCo, obviously, is one of the first people, Epicenter, which is our e- mm-hmm. entrepreneurial ecosystem hub here in town, uh, both the city of Memphis and Shelby County, because they, they did a match challenge with each other, uh, FedEx, Kresge Foundation, Chase, uh, and a few others. And then CBU came on as the fiscal agent, as well as the educational component to that, right. and program facilitation. Uh, and then with me coming on board uh, as part of that, the charter was actually to establish a Center for Entrepreneurship CBU and to hire a director. So I became uh, a part of CBU through the 800 initiative, actually. Uh, our goal uh, was to uh, bring uh, resources, funding, so capital, education, acceleration, incubation, you know, virtual interns and entrepreneurs and executives and residents amongst a few other things all to bear to help mm-hmm. these minority businesses. We built a portfolio and now we have 52 privately owned minority firms in the portfolio. It's an active portfolio. I mean, we work on them on a daily basis. Awesome. Uh, all of them have received funding for a certain level or most of them have. We took CARES Act money this past year and actually dispersed $200,000 in two months to these firms through microgrants and stipends for why they're in the programs. Uh, we've touched over 2,100 firms in three years through programs, workshops, events. We have 500 firms that have actively received programming. And then, like I said, 52 that are in our portfolio. We've created 171 new jobs. Now, that took a hit in COVID, but sure. pre-COVID, we were there. And about $19 million in net new revenue over three years. So these $19 million of new revenue brought to these businesses that they didn't have before. Uh, and a couple of very compelling financial capital infusion funds that are there at their disposal to help them reach, you know, capital milestones mm-hmm. to reach new things. So it's become a, this extremely rewarding program. Uh, we just got a fourth year of funding from the county. Uh, I'm sorry, from the city, from Mayor Strickland, uh-huh. uh, which wasn't even planned. So Mayor Strickland said, "Hey, I'm gonna we're going to re up and, and do a fourth year because of all the work y'all been doing, the Fantastic. impact you made, which is a great testament." What we're doing, and again, shows the continued effort of, of Mayor Strickland and the City Council and Director Massey. Um, and so that it, it's just a, a really great initiative uh, of which now we've seen Knoxville form the Knoxville 100, which is a, a clone of the 800 initiative. Mm-hmm. We did a, you know, we had a few meetings with them and talked to them about our structure, and then they created their own, and it's working. They just got five new firms in it the other day. Uh, I talked to St. Louis this morning uh, with I-10, their, their entrepreneur network up there in Lindenwood University, because they want to start doing some of the programs that we're doing. Wow. We talked about the 800 issue this morning. St. Louis and Memphis are very, very similar, minority-majority cities, very mm-hmm. diverse. Uh, they have two. They have a city and a county mayor as well, so it was kind of funny to talk to them about that. But, you know, they want to see things. So we're seeing a push regionally, um, and it all comes from really, and just you know, speaking on behalf of the CBU, it's... You know, CBU's mission is very community-minded. Right. Um, we're LaSallian, uh, and so our mission is to enter to learn, leave to serve, right? So we put ourselves and our students and our faculty out into the community purposefully and deliberately to bring those resources, any resources that we can muster, to those communities that have been, you know, disenfranchised for so many years. Right. And we're bordering on two opportunity zones, uh, almost three, with South, Orange Mountain, and Binghampton between us. So we really focus a lot in those areas, uh, and that's, you know, we, we were hoping to have Leslie Maccabee join us today as well. She's the director of the AutoZone Center for Community Engagement. Um, just one example beyond the 800 initiative, if I may, you know, we have a capstone course or a program at CBU where we have students, seniors, that are matched up with community partners, uh, businesses, yeah. like uh, Shemichael Hallman from Cosset library downtown with the library system, they reinvented Cosset completely from the ground up, leaving the walls and doing everything else, but turned it into a brand new resource center and library. And it's all part of the gateway into the fourth bluff. So our students joined with Schmeichel and the rest of the team to build my fourth bluff, an application uh, that uh, allows for people to find out what's going on with the events and the resources and and community engagement and everything else. And that's a great example along with the initiative of how 
CBU in particular is really trying to not just focus on what's inside of our campus, but take our students outside the gates of our campus right. and expose them to opportunities to impact the city. And through these engagements and through our two centers, Leslie's and mine, we're very, again, I like the word deliberate. We're very deliberate and in a concerted fashion to say, where are we going to make an impact? Not just how, but where. And we look at that and say, okay, we can make an impact here because the fourth bluff and cost it and that whole library system, which is a safe haven down, downtown, all needs to be revamped so it can be a better place, a destination for our citizens to go to. So let's do this collectively. Let's bring in the youth and the students and our mm -hmm. seniors on Capstone because they're going to learn from this impact. Let's work with community leaders like Schmeichel and really build an application that is good for our business. I mean, good for our businesses in Memphis and our citizens. I love and there's that. some great examples like that. So 800 and, and what Leslie's doing are stuff that I, I really never dreamed would be the icing on the cake of being able to teach yeah. entrepreneurship, but it really is. It's been fantastic. Yeah. I, you know, what a powerful combination to be able to teach young people, college students, a framework to think. Right. And then go out in the real world and see how it really works because it's not as clean as it is in class, and you right. got to learn that, but the best way is to go do it. So that's right. a great combination. Yeah. I love it. That, and that's, uh, that's yeah, I, I might have come into the university setting, and I certainly don't like the fact that COVID happened, but the fact that I came in during this period of time mm -hmm. and there was this – global reassessment of our lives and how we have to change and right. how we were forced to change. It's something that's also in turn made the universities realize um, that virtualized education is something that's completely legitimate and can be done asynchronous mm -hmm. and synchronously um, and, and still have that interaction with the students. Hybrid right. is something that is also very beneficial to both the students and the university, so a half and half. Um, but understanding that traditional students are not the only students. Right. Right. And so the community has thousands and thousands and thousands of people that desire to be educated collegiately, mm -hmm. uh, but don't have the time or maybe even also the desire, certainly the economics to go to a four, get a four-year degree. Right. Uh, the associate's degrees and are great, but it also takes commitment and financial, and even those are mostly paid for now, it still take a time commitment. And mm -hmm. I still don't believe that most of these associate degrees are something that they want to get, right? So if we have easier ways for these people to take certification courses, get mm -hmm. certificates and badges and different points and different things to add to the resume or do two-year educational programs at colleges or seek a four-year degree, but of having a variety of solutions for the variety of people uh, really is where university is going, and that's where really CBU is really pushing yep. pretty hard of yep. trying to figure out how to educate more. Uh, of those people that desire to be educated but have been excluded for one reason or another. I'm, I'm, I love hearing that. Um, one of the things that, that the 800 initiative seems, and, and really the your Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation kind of is holistic. That's the mm -hmm. word that keeps coming to mind. Yeah. Um, why is that important in, in your view to be engaging with government, semi-government, for-profit, non-for-profit, um, all these different community connections? Why is that important? Yeah, again, very timely. I was literally before I came in here, I was on another conversation with a colleague uh, here in St. Louis who's just starting his career in this space where mm -hmm. I was a two years ahead of him. So I was sharing some things, but that's what we we're talking about. The 800 Initiative would not be successful. It didn't have this special recipe of people, this special collection of ingredients that went with us. And I think to me, it's government, private, and public, right? You mm -hmm. have to have the municipalities behind this because generally they always have the resources that you need. Uh, they have, especially with the city of Memphis, they have of the certification process. So every business comes in and gets certified through the through the city, right? And the minorities get certified and, and, and we, we can know that. And that's a good thing. They also have a good understanding of both their financial needs through bids and RFPs as well mm -hmm. as others that are in the city. So they collect that information. Our city has the ODBC, the Office of Business Diversity and Compliance, and the, and the Entrepreneur Network Center. So we have all these resources. So the city is a very important part and they financially put money behind us, which is also an important part you know, money behind the passion. Right. Then you have, you know, the, the public side where you have the, the, uh, more of the, you know, the, the, what I'm saying by public is also the commercial side, the corporate mm -hmm. side, right? Mm -hmm. You have the, the FedExes, but then you also have the, the foundations like Kresge and Kaufman and Chase and a few of those others. But then you also have the resource centers like Epicenter and Starco. And then you have universities like CBU and U of M working on different things. And when you have this combination of all these 
in critical resources and everybody's putting forth resources, times, and money, then everyone's skin is in the game. Uh, everyone is motivated to make it a success because no one wants to, I mean, at, face, at least no one wants to be the point of failure, right? right. So we all want to succeed. So we all want to do our part and not let the, let the other parties down. And then when you actually see the impact you're making as a consortium of, of resources, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, can, you can truly see the impact that a large consortium of resources can make on a small community, yeah. right? And then you can see that it can make it that same impact on a larger swath of that community. And then you can actually target those to certain opportunity zones as well. And so that's, that's, that's what I think has kind of been the key to success for the 800 initiative is enough players that have important enough roles and positions, not necessarily their titles, but who they right. represent, mm-hmm. um, coming together again in a deliberate fashion. That's going to be the key word of this podcast, deliberate fashion to uh, bring resources to those that are in need. Yeah, and I I think without that, without that grouping of powerful players at the table, it 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 can't do as much as one would like it to do, and often it fails. Right, and then we see a bunch of siloed resources like we've always had, mm-hmm. and again, COVID helped us because what we realized is we couldn't be siloed anymore. Even the ones outside the Ather Initiative, like the Edge and some of the other um, entities in town. So when PPP and all these different things, programs came in, all the entrepreneurs got very confused. Right. Uh, they had money being thrown at them. They were mm-hmm. in desperate need of it, so they yep. captured, They just grabbed it, mm-hmm. right, which left our capital funds kind of dry for a little while, mm-hmm. you know, at port, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was okay because we were helping them, advising them on how to utilize the government funds and the CARES Act funds. But what we realized is we needed all the players on the phone call on a weekly basis, right? So we got – you know, Tommy and, you know, rest in peace, but all these different people that came in and, and worked together, Leslie Smith and, and all these powerful people, we met on a weekly basis to talk about all of our resources and how we can actually pass people back and forth and say, this, my program is not going to work for this people, but your program was, right. oh, great. I didn't even know those people existed. I'll take them. Mm-hmm. We had people from the unemployment office on for every week. So we were getting statistics on number of people filing every week helping out the restaurants that we started working with during this period of time, mm-hmm. understanding staffing and, and and stuff like that, and really trying to talk to them about what's going to happen when people come off of Workman's Comp, or not, yeah, the, the unemployment, rather, right. mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that. I think I said Workman's Comp earlier, but unemployment. Uh, and so, you know, all of us coming together also helped really, you know, con- you know in a concerted effort to, to bring those resources to the to the population as well. That That makes a lot of sense to me, but I also know it's incredibly difficult Oh, yeah. To, to uh, manage and to uh, cast that vision. Um, one of the things that I hate doing is reinventing the wheel, right? right. Uh, matter of fact, in the book, uh, I've got a chapter on uh, warning signs of uh, impact organizations, and one of them is you, you keep reinventing the same wheel over right. and over. Um, is the 800 initiative uh, unique to Memphis? Is it a Memphis thing, or were the ideas taken from other cities uh, around the U.S.? I would say that most cities have a minority development center of mm-hmm. some sort, um, and we've had very successful ones here in Memphis for a long time too. Uh, so everybody's, again, to the silos. I, I would say right. most major you know, uh, cities have some sort of resource or resource pool for minority businesses and entrepreneurs struggling, uh, but I don't think there's a lot of things like the 800 Initiative. That's really neat. Not, when I not heard that you, city-wide. Yeah, when I heard you talking about Knoxville and, and, um, and St. Louis – I mean, it kind of goes back to me, to the talent, the creativity that's in Memphis. We've got a lot of really neat things to export, and we it's do. neat to watch what you guys are doing. And I can only imagine, as it grows, yeah, the exporting of these ideas. It, I mean, holy smokes, can you imagine some of the larger cities like Detroit and Chicago being able to start working together uh, across all these different uh, disciplines and different uh, public-private I mean that would be that would be really huge. So I'm excited to see the influence you guys have across the country. Well, I, I'm I am too. I mean that's one of the things we were talking to St. Louis about this morning. Not in great detail of let's get started, but it was like, hey, let's think about this. Um, we have this opportunity where you know you have the research triangle out east, and you have Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. the corridor down south, and then Boston and that whole Chicago area. But we don't really have anything that goes through this mid-south area, right? So mm-hmm. the St. Louis's and Kansas City's down through the Arkansas's, through the Delta, and down even to New Orleans, right? Right. There's this quote-unquote corridor of opportunity there that's not necessarily a tech corridor, but it could be an entrepreneurial corridor, 
right? Yeah. Where all the cities work together on our, you know, collectively, but we also are working towards and for those businesses that make up our cities, right? We all want a tech unicorn to be born sure. out of our cities. Who wouldn't want that? But the fact of the matter is, is if I had to, if you gave me the opportunity to choose between one 10, uh, 10x on unicorn or a thousand family businesses that I can help go to 2x, 3x, right. first of all, you do the numbers. I'm making more, you know, more money is right. being made for the city on the thousand than the one. But that's really a, more of a rising tide lifting boats than the one is. And if that's the same case in St. Louis and the same case in Arkansas and Little Rock and Bentonville and the same case in New Orleans and Jackson, Mississippi, uh, that allows for those entrepreneurs to feel like they're in the right city for them because they have resources up and down. It brings economic development up and down. And then you know people can move from city to city, but other people from other cities that are looking for that will move here. They don't have to be technologists, just entrepreneurs. Right. And I'm thrilled to hear you say that because, sure, everybody wants the home run. Right. Right. But when I think about a thousand versus one, I think of a diversified portfolio, right? It's much healthier. Exactly. You know, uh, a lot of these uh, unicorns can yank their cities around too, and yep. they end up going back and forth and back oh, and forth. Oh, and then they leave, right? Right. You know? <laughs> and then your unicorns are <laughs> They got gone, the tax right? credits for four years. That's right. They're and out of there. I tell right. it out. But those thousand yeah. small businesses, and, and, and I think I read something, uh, um, maybe it was Andre Folks uh, talking about just – you know, raising their revenue up to a million dollars a year from I think an average of six fifty or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's a huge. Uh, think of how many people you can employ. Think about moving to a living wage. I mean, all these things, and it touches all over the city. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I, we have a lot of people moving into or have been and now are succeeding in, in the construction space. We have the mm -hmm. Union Row. We have you know the pinch. It's, it's you know it's going to happen eventually. We have the South Side going and everything else. There's a lot of new development corporately and residentially across the entire city, which is opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to focus on. But we need to have these businesses, minority and otherwise, be worthy of that business. Right. Not not just because, I mean, they're worthy of it, but are they capable? Sure. Right? And that's what you I mean by worthy. It. It's like, can you do a good job mm -hmm. to get that repeat business, to get that ex that upsell business, right. to, to grow your capacity? And that's where we want to help them is really like, look, you have an opportunity uh, to – to bid on this Union Row thing, not just because they've earmarked a certain amount for minority businesses, because you're the best business to, that's exactly to pitch right. this, regardless of your skin color. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that, that's where we want want to be. Yeah, I, I love that. So metrics are a big deal to me. I know they are to you guys as mm -hmm. well. But relative to what you guys are tracking for the 800 initiative, mm -hmm. what are some of those data points and why do you think they're important to track? I think the the most critical data points that we picked up very early on was net new revenue and jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and, and someone would say, "Oh, well, that's a simple thing to choose." Obviously, those are obvious ones. I'm like, and we're like, "Yeah, but those are also key components to um, to to bridging between that three percent that I talked about earlier mm -hmm. and fifty to sixty percent, right? right? At least owning a, a half share uh, or a majority share, if since you're a majority group. Um, so, you know, net new jobs meant to us a a point of where, because of those 39,000, only 800 of those firms had more than one employee. <laughs> okay, that's, that's 39,000 firms mm -hmm. that were single proprietor firms. Okay, and you want to talk about a scary existence as an entrepreneur, yep. being on your own is a Tough scary to get traction. It right. really is. So our idea first off was not just to bring in net new revenue for those companies that had more than one employee, but is to bring those companies that didn't have an employee mm -hmm. to the point where they did. To us, bringing someone who is single-threaded and then allowing them to add capacity by bringing on another person, and this is why we have the intern program and our executive and our talent augmentation program, is to allow them to gain capacity, which is allow them to do more sales, allow them right. to capture more sales, allow them to operate and execute on more sales, and then generate revenue. And then take that revenue and grow and scale and do the same thing. Just rinse and repeat as you keep going on. So, And those are key entrepreneurial skills, right, yeah, that yeah. kind of only you can do as the, as the leader of the organization. You got no capacity. Absolutely. You can't do it. Absolutely. I mean, I've been a single-threaded founder before, and there's always reaching that, that litmus point mm -hmm. when you just can't do it anymore. Yep. And I have a saying that I teach everybody, which is, do less better than more worse. It's six words, but it's it's like just make sure you understand that you need help and capacity. Bring people on, put less on your plate, put more on others' plates as well. Spread it out and do less 
and do it better, right? And so instead of trying to do it all. And so that's that's kind of the goal, and this is what we have to teach. And so adding capacity allows that person, that single-threaded person, to actually have more capacity. And then once they bridge into that next group, that 800, and this is really where the name came from because we were focusing on the 800, as well as to get you into that 800 was to add people. Now, to, when you're in the 800, our focus is on net new revenue. And it's not just about increasing the opportunities you have with your current customers. It's about going out and getting more customers. Right. Because current customers are great, and you can grow with them, but they're going to limit you in time. In right. fact, they might go away in time just for natural reasons, not mm-hmm. because of anything you did. But And everyone bids, you know, rebids every few years anyway, so mm-hmm. you might lose out for somebody else. But if you grow in the number of clients you have, and the number of revenue opportunities you have, and the sources of revenue, uh, then you diversify your entire, right. you know, your entire, you know, uh, well, we'll, you, we'll say portfolio in this case, yeah. but your, mm-hmm. in your operations, and so you have a higher likelihood of success across the board because your points of failure are fewer and, and far between. So um, that's where our main goal was: is add jobs and add net new revenue. There's an interesting thing which we can maybe talk about this later offline. There's a point at which your business becomes an asset that's sellable, right? So you think about a retirement plan. Um, you know, it's it's kind of rare, at least that I see in my line of work, that an individual entrepreneur, or an individual business does has. It's rare that it doesn't have a higher return than say the stock market, because it's you. You're you're passionate about it. You're usually good at what you do, but it is very difficult to get that to a sellable point yeah. where somebody else could come buy your I think that's why systems are important. That's why a lot of customer, I shouldn't say a lot, a diverse customer base is really mm-hmm. important right. because that um, protects the buyer, right, from some downside. So um, I, I, those are those are really good metrics, and I'm, yeah. I'm glad y'all are focused on those. They, they, they're, they're pretty important ones for us. Yeah. So um, – I guess core value for me. I believe that business, and I would say yes, for-profit business. I don't think profit's a bad word, right? Um, I think it's one of the greatest tools for the good of mankind, right? When I mm-hmm. think about lifting people from poverty, uh, economic security, um, dignity, um, just finding your calling—all those things, shared purpose. When mm-hmm. you have a team, mm-hmm. um, I just think it's really powerful uh, to bring people together to do so many things. Um, talk about um, maybe a story of how you've seen the work that you guys are doing that leads to flourishing in the community. Well, we're seeing a lot, you know, there's, and there's something you said earlier that I haven't seen before that I'm starting to see now, which is conversations about acquisitions. You have small businesses thinking about buying other small businesses. That's and that's not something that generally happens, right. more or less something that's discussed. Usually small businesses simply see other businesses as competition, not an avenue for expansion mm-hmm. or, or scaling, right? So we've had conversations. So, I mean, I think that's one of those things. I mean, it's, my, it's not necessarily a community impact, and I'll come to that in a second, but it's also just an economic impact thing or where you have a company that's going to do X growth based on acquisition, which is not something that they would typically think of before. So it's certainly proof, in my opinion, that the education that we're giving these people, the resources we're giving these people, mm-hmm. they're starting to think – in a different box, right? I mean, it's That's certainly awesome. out of the box they were, yeah. but it's in a different format of saying, okay, well, there's more ways than one to scale, mm-hmm. right? And so, and there's more that. ways one to diversify my portfolio or, or diversify my product offering or whatever it is. It's a pretty just, huge paradigm shift. Right, or just go grab their customers because all yeah. I want is their customers. Right. So I'm going to take away everything else. Uh-huh. I'm just going to scuttle them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. So I think that's impactful uh, yeah. from an entrepreneurial and economic and corporate perspective. Um, you know, I see things, I think the best example that I can see is the impact that our interns make on mm-hmm. these businesses, but also the impact that the businesses make on the interns. Yeah. So I'll consider this to be a social impact for me, and I think it's a pretty clear one, which is when you have a student that is not feeling like they're a warm body, punching numbers, doing data entry or anything else, but actually has marketing campaigns they're being asked to do. We had students developing apps next last semester and websites for people. These are the things that they're learning how to do in school and they're applying those in real world. But these are also minority businesses that have been struggling over the last year. And so when these interns come in, the level of passion that the interns start to put forth to these mm-hmm. businesses is measurable. And you're like going, okay, 
that's making an impact. They're not just a college student anymore. They're a college student that has experience in a struggling business, right. and they were passionate about helping that business succeed through this or survive through this. So the impact of the student has been great. But when I interview the founders, the business owners, it's equally imp as impactful for them too because they've brought right. in a student that wasn't just a warm body. They might have thought that before, but the student then said, challenged them to say, I want more. How more can I help you? And when they say, well, okay, you've done the data entry thing. Let's talk about marketing. What would you think about marketing? And they start contributing. Mm -hmm. That person, is get, the student is getting exceptionally good experience firsthand. But the founder is also learning how to work with another person. So for these single founders that are bringing on interns, mm -hmm. now they're realizing, oh, gosh, I can get a lot more done yeah. if I have more capacity. And so I think that's both, again, an entrepreneurial economic impact, but also a social right. impact. It's bringing two generations together. It's allowing for you know someone to understand a, a different level of experience than you would from just being in college. You got the founder looking at capacity in a different way and the scaling options that they would have. Uh, and that brings on economic development and economic wealth uh, because of it. So to me, it. that's an impact. Yeah. Um, and it's one that connects resources to people in need. And these are future staff considerations. So mm -hmm. you got an intern, they're a junior, they graduate in senior, you make them an offer, you bring them on board full time. Yep. Right. And I then, love that. And, that, and then that's all, you know, part of the whole mix of, yep. of impact. And that holistic approach Again, that you yeah. guys are taking. I right. mean, that's fantastic. Well, as we try to land a plane, sort of a lightning round, okay. some questions for you. I'll start you off easy. Okay. Sure. Ice cream or baked desserts? Ice cream. What's your favorite ice cream if you had to pick? I'm just uh, curious. I'm, I'm an ice cream fanatic. Uh, I'm still a vanilla kind of guy at oh, heart, yeah. but I like toppings. So I never it's never straight <laughs> vanilla. Yeah, I right. hear you. Yeah, you can you can load that up. Right. I really like that. So bourbon, beer, or non alcoholic? Bourbon. Favorite bourbon? I, I was a I'm always a Buffalo Trace guy. I mean, because I love a lot of different ones, but but that's the one I always go to. I love it. Or that distillery. That's the go to like. in your right. cabinet. I like right. that. All right, I'll get a little bit more serious. Uh, one quote. If you could share one quote today, what would it be? You miss all the shots you don't take. I love it. That's either by Michael Scott or Wayne Gretzky, depending on if you've watched The Office or not. I was thinking Michael Jordan, but yeah. yeah well, Scott you know, or just, Wayne Gretzky, right, you, yeah, you're there. You just, uh, you, I was talking <laughs> to the students about it today. You, know, you, don't, you don't take the shot, you definitely are not going to make it. You know what? And when you're like us, uh, 46, 50 years old, you look back and you say, man, I learned something almost every missed shot, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that. Right. I really do. One book, if you were, it could be something that's uh, like shaped your life or just something you read yesterday. It's a really weird book, but the singularity effect is something I read about seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. It's not widely known. Uh, the guy talks a lot about Harry Potter, oddly enough, and correlates awesome. a lot of what he's talking about Harry Potter. But the essence of the book was really him talking about how every seven or eight years there's a fundamental shift in technology that exponentially grows mm -hmm. the, the world, right? And I think we're in one of those things. And I've been able, because I read that book, I've been able to identify the last few singularities. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and it's kind of been one of these things where it's like, I'm like, yeah, I see that, you know, and I, okay, I see that. And so it's, it's kind of helped me. Uh, the lean, uh, you know, the lean startup uh, by Eric Rice was a great one. And the startup way, because I do have a corporate history. So, mm -hmm. I always wanted to teach corporates how to be more entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. and I haven't got that chance yet. Maybe I will in the future, but that, because I was always entrepreneurial when I was working for those. So it's, it, that's a good book that I like a lot because it talks about the corporate startup world um, and entrepreneurship. Yep. Uh, so those, those few books. So most, oh, and then it. Crack the Funding Code by Judy Robinette. Yeah. Uh, so that's a great one too. That's a, really kind of the main reason I do these interviews is because I want to get to that one question. About the books. About books because yeah. that's fascinating. Not only do you get to see into other people's souls, sort of, yeah. so to speak. But you also get to learn a lot because most of these books aren't really that I'm hearing are not really New York Times bestsellers. They're just I, books that touched somebody. Yeah, I, you know, I used to be a work. big nonfiction guy and a big uh -huh. fiction guy, and I wrote a, read a lot of stuff, and and I just for some reason those books just stuck out to me. Yeah, um, and how to eat a grasshopper in one bite, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, testing and talking with humans. I mean, these are small little entrepreneurial books that I've read yeah. over the years that have really made an impact. 
Yeah. Um, so it, it's, yeah. So hopefully our, you and your listeners had a few more books that you hadn't that, thought of That's before. perfect. That's perfect. We're going to post them in the email notice too, just so people can click on them and go right. get them. Um, so you should get some royalties from the office. Sure. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. That might could get you the car. So uh, last but not least, one person who significantly influenced your life and in 30 seconds or less, how and why? I used to say my dad, and I used to say my mom at mm-hmm. different times, but now mm-hmm. I'm going to say my wife, Chelsea uh, Berenger. She's the branch manager at Goldwater Bank here. We just opened the other day. She's been here for about a year, but they just opened their first branch the other awesome. day. Awesome. Um, it's been, you know, it's one of those things where she was my co-founder five years ago, and now we're part, you know, we're life partners and, and husband and wife. Uh, I don't think I was ever challenged enough uh, growing up as well as, believe it or not, as well as, um, you know, going through the first periods Mm -hmm. of my adult life. Uh, And she constantly challenges me. It's awesome. And she's an an exceptionally good entrepreneur. We learn off each other every day. And so I think today, you know, I can get past that, you know, my dad made a big impact to me and my mom made a big Mm -hmm. impact to me, both as entrepreneurs and human beings, but that my wife is the one who constantly makes me better. But those are some fascinating dinner conversations. Yeah. Um, so how can impact-minded people or companies get involved with what you guys are doing or find out more? You know, so Epicenter is a great source. Uh, the Center for Entrepreneurship at Christian Brothers, my name, I'm on LinkedIn. Anybody can reach out to me there. Awesome. I'll give you my contact information for you to include in the Perfect. in the footnotes as well. Um, you know, reach out to me. I, I have... I'm fortunate enough to have a very large, you know, quote unquote Rolodex, if anybody knows what that is anymore. Um, and I, I, it's taken me a long time to build it and I, I hold, I cherish it greatly right. and I don't just let it go to anybody that doesn't deserve it necessarily, but I'm willing to represent just about anybody who deserves it. So if you need something, if you're an entrepreneur in need, or if you're someone who wants to make an impact, and there's a lot of people in this country, in the city who have a lot of money that can be very impactful, uh, that, either are in the pursuits of or not realizing where to go to look to put that money. It's not, this is not an entrepreneur asking for a million dollars for my business. This is me asking for money from those individuals so I can put those into hundreds of businesses right? through resources and capital infusion and building out our incubator that we just started two, two days ago, uh, you know, and, and doing, you know, building out our center. Um, and I want to build a retail incubator for retail pop-ups mm-hmm. and everything else. I mean, these are all things that, can be uh, very extremely, you know, extremely impactful if we have more resources to that. So whether that's sweat equity and somebody wants to volunteer, or whether somebody wants to donate, uh, or once somebody wants to do both, donation with, with equity, sweat mm-hmm. equity. I'm all ears, and all you got to do fantastic. is reach out. That's fantastic. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, it's, it's been, been my pleasure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's fascinating to say the least, right? So thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, you can learn more about impact at edgillantine.com. It's a great resource, we hope, for impact articles, white papers, uh, website links like what's going on at CBU and other resources that we hope are going to help your journey to impact. You can get the book, Journey to Impact, in any uh, printed form or major digital platform at our website or at Amazon.com directly or Barnes & Noble. Or believe it or not, I saw it on (laughs) Target.com the other day. You can also, on our website, go back and listen to the podcast and the other interviewers. And please leave us a review. Let us know what you're thinking um, and what you want to hear about because we take your feedback seriously. Again, thanks for joining us. And until next time, get off the bench. Get into the game. 